Hey friends, welcome to Naked in Truth, the podcast that's designed to open up your mind, to help you break down walls and barriers in your life that you might not even know exist yet. But don't worry, every wall that we break down together on this podcast allows you the opportunity to level up and create your impact. With that being said, I think it's time for us to get honest, vulnerable, and naked in truth. Welcome back to the Naked in Truth podcast. It is me, Sari D, and I am back today with a very special guest. Guys, we have Mark Hennick here with us, who is a mental health advocate. He is also the author of So-Called Normal, which is his memoir, and he is here today to tell us his story, which I know is going to relate to so many of us because I know that right from when we're young all into adulthood, there's many moments where we feel like we're not enough. And that feeling of not enough can really lead to some deep and dark moments. So Mark is going to be the inspiration here for us today to tell us his story. So Mark, can you say hey to the listeners? Hey, listeners. Thanks so much, Sari, as well, for having me on your show. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you. So we just want to know, what is it that you're currently doing in your day-to-day? So day-to-day, I mean, I've had the privilege for um, basically all of my adult life of working as a mental health advocate and media commentator, Uh, now running my company, uh, consulting with uh, companies for creating messaging around mental health to better inform people, um, but also helping the public to better understand what mental health and mental illness really actually are in our day-to-day lives. So that's how I spend the majority of my time. I love it because it's such such an important position to have because... Um, You guys are going to have to go and listen to his TED Talk. It is absolutely phenomenal. I'm going to tag it down in the notes below. And he's going to be touching a bit on that today. But the biggest thing to remember is that mental health needs to be talked about, right? And it's not something that we need to talk about behind closed doors, which is why I'm so happy to have this podcast to really talk to you guys about all different areas of life um, that really come down to what we can control. So Mark, I want to know when it comes to you yourself, were you the kind of child who always felt like you were struggling with your mental health, maybe with your confidence, or is this something that you started to notice once you went into your teenage years? Can you kind of paint that picture for us? No, it it definitely began for me from my earliest memories, though I wouldn't have known that at the time. I didn't know that's what it was at the time. Uh, It was only much later, and I still think in in an ongoing way, that I'm learning how to define what my mental health actually is, what these different feelings Mm -hmm. are, and how to cope with them and deal with them. Because it just wasn't, it wasn't normal for people to talk uh, 20 five, 30 years ago uh, yeah. about mental health the way that we, we, we do now. It's really only been in the last 10 years that we've been talking this openly. Um, so I think I was struggling from a very young age, but only learned the, the language for it much later. Okay. So then now with you being able to assess that as the self-aware person that you are now, what were some of those signs that you would be able to recognize now that that child was struggling if you were able to look at you when you were younger? So I think for me, like many people who struggled um, or or, or are struggling uh, intensely 
for very long periods of time, it kind of evolved in two tracks. Um, one of them was temperamental. I was probably a sensitive kid anyway. That's just the way that I was was born. I absorbed the emotions and the and the feelings of other people around me, and uh, I had more difficulty, I think, regulating my emotions from a very young age anyway. Okay. Um, the other track, though, I, and I think of that as the kind of internal one, the one that I owned, uh, but then the other track is the external one, the environment around me. I grew up in a uh, a very uncertain environment, especially after my father left. My mother was struggling just to pay the bills. I was the youngest of three. Uh, and then when we moved in with, uh, my mother moved in with a man who ended up becoming uh, emotionally abusive to our entire family, never really feeling safe uh, at home or at school. So I think those two, uh, I was vulnerable anyway, just by my constitution, but then being placed in, in circumstances where I think anybody would struggle with their mental health. Uh, for me, it was a, a bit of a toxic combination, I think. Absolutely. And, and uh, props to you for recognizing that, because I don't think that a lot of people realize that a lot of people don't see what happiness looks like. And it's really hard for you to create a picture or like you mentioned there, that safe zone when you as a child, that's all you see is, is conflict or tension or whatever. Right. So like just that in and of itself, myself, like would be so hard for you to even know that you can be happy when you're, you're seeing, you know, your father figure leave, you're seeing your mom struggle day in and day out, just trying to put food on the table. Like that isn't really painting a a picture that like, Life is going to be easy and that it's just meant to be happy. Right. So I, I really respect you for that. So now when it came to like, I listened to your Ted talk, it was phenomenal. Like I got goosebumps the whole time listening to it. You are, I just have to say you're an incredible speaker and you're meant to be doing this. But with that being said, you know, you had mentioned that you were kind of a quiet kid. Now, does that mean that you were always kind of quiet or do you feel like as the years developed and you were kind of creating this, this resentment towards life that you didn't put yourself in situations that would have allowed you to not be the quiet kid because you couldn't see your worth. Mm, that's a, that's a really good question and point at the end there. And I think it's, it's a little bit of both. I think I was and am an introvert uh, just by nature, which is funny because I'm, I've never seen a stage that I haven't wanted to be on. I'm in front of cameras and microphones all the time, but I'm still a, I still identify as an introvert because I, I recharge. Yeah. When I'm alone, uh, when I'm reading, when I'm in intimate situations, that's where I derive the most energy, not when I'm out at, you know, parties and big public events. So sure. I still am just by nature, uh, an introvert, but also I traced and really articulated the, um, evolution of my my turning inward throughout the course of my book and that was really an unexpected development in writing my book was that i was able to see how i was turning uh inward more so than even i did naturally anyway mm-hmm. um to hide to try to hide and protect myself protect because it was exactly it was safer inside myself in this world that i could build in my own head because then i could control that world or at least i could for a while uh, until I couldn't anymore. So I think it was actually both that I that I, that to a degree I felt more comfortable uh, being quieter uh, and more internally focused. But then also I had no choice. So those two things I think developed probably together. And you know, like this this story spoke so close to my heart because you know I went through a lot of the same things that you did in junior high. You know, I I went through suicide attempts. 
I was throwing myself out there for male attention. I was cutting. I was a complete fucking mess, but I felt in control. And that was the key, right? And that was one thing that I noticed that you had mentioned is that, you know, when you were on that overpass, like you felt like you were in control of your life. And that's what I want the listeners to really understand is that we need to take this level of self-awareness of how we're controlling our lives, right? And is this in a way that's actually serving us or are we allowing us to build this world that we're staying within where we will never be enough? where we will always control that pain tolerance and that that pain is is meant to feel good. We're creating it. We're getting addicted to it. Right. And so for you yourself, like I want to know before those two attempts that you talked about in your Ted talk, were you struggling and thinking about suicide planning things prior to junior high? Yeah, so I was. And those two um, stories that I told in the TED Talk, of course, a TED Talk, I only had 16 minutes, and that's yeah. even kind of long for a TED Talk. So I thought to myself, in the developing of that, how can we bookend this story? Yeah. And really, my my um, objective there was to show a bit, uh, two points anyway, that would show the progression. Because this is so often how suicide in particular happens, how mental health problems and illnesses happen. Um, something will happen in my case that was very um, ill-defined, kind of uh, not a whole lot of intent, but definitely a cry for help. And then without getting that help years later, I ended up, of course, uh, having a much more dangerous suicide attempt when I tried to jump off a bridge in my hometown. In the intervening years, I was in and out of hospital more than half a dozen times. I think I was probably suicidal at least two years, even before that first attempt. So as young as (laughs) nine or 10 years old, I think. Um, So, you know, for me, it was a long-term struggle that when I, again, when I was writing the book, I pulled all of my medical records from all that time in my life, and I literally laid it out physically on the floor in front of me. I copied out down the dates of the different attempts and hospital admissions and all that stuff. I looked at um, when we were living with my stepfather, when we had to move out, we moved out more than probably a dozen times. Uh, and I never understood why my mother always went back to that place. Um, but we were always in and out and always unstable. But when I actually stood back and looked at kind of the bigger picture of the trajectory of my childhood and adolescence, I couldn't help but think, well, of course, of course, I was struggling the way that I was. Who wouldn't be in this kind of situation? And why didn't anybody else seem to be able to zoom back out too and see this as well? And then, you know, I I couldn't help but think about my mother, uh, who she was in it with me the entire time. So how could she see the bigger picture when she was actively living it as well? Absolutely. And so like, you know, for you to go through that so young, if you don't mind me asking, were you starting to go through puberty at that time when you really started to notice like this is when things are starting to get really bad? Yeah, I would say that my symptoms probably started before that. Okay. Um, but when I did start to to grow up, I, I have a little uh, scene in the book about that as well, and start to notice, you know, other people around me and and um, be confused by those kinds of changes. Uh, it definitely exacerbated uh, mm-hmm. some of the problems because I grew up in a uh, a pretty uh, observant Irish Catholic uh, household. My stepfather, in particular, was 
had very um, vocal and strict religious views. So there was all kinds of stuff around sex and sexuality and, and um, you know, how we behave and what's sinful and what's not, so what taboo, makes you right? evil and what, so, so many taboos. And then carrying all that guilt inside me as well, mm-hmm. not, not being sure how to express any of these changes that I was feeling. Yeah. And if it made me bad, a that bad was a, a constant, a bad person. That was a constant recurring narrative throughout my childhood. Am I bad uh, or am I good? Uh, yeah. For me, that was, that was central. And I think what's really crazy is that we don't realize that when we're being raised, we're really being raised two generations behind, right? Because they're only teaching us off of what their parents taught them and potentially what they've picked up in their today's world. And so, you know, it's so funny because the generation that you were living in at that time had progressed so much further and many people were talking about it, right? But your parents were just trying to teach you what they essentially knew at that time. So I know everybody's getting excited. Like, let's get to the juice of what has actually happened in this story that we're talking about here. So I'm wondering, could you give us a light synopsis um, from really the starting point in your childhood, like we're talking about, um, to kind of where you are today? So after we had moved in with uh, the man who I would uh, would come to call my stepfather, although he and my mother were never married, um, that relationship really fell apart quite quickly after that. And we, my my older brother left, and my my older sister left. So I felt really very physically, literally alone uh, in his house in the country at the end of a long dead end dirt road, surrounded by a hundred acres of woods and every. So I was physically uh, very isolated. Yeah. Um, but then having that external world sink into me as well, having him always tell me, boys don't cry, uh, suck it up, be a man, that kind of recurring toxic masculinity uh, yeah. that I was surrounded by every day. Um, making the transition from elementary school into junior high school, I think that's when things really started to um, to pick up for me, uh, or, or I should say fall, fall apart for me uh, in many ways. That's when something changed because that kind of a, that's a significant life change for a young person to change schools, right? It takes away all the habit, all the familiarity, uh, and it's a new environment. So um, that for me was when things kind of kind of fell apart, and I started uh, to overtly express that I was suicidal. Okay. Um, my guidance school guidance counselor found out, brought me to the hospital because there was nowhere else to go. There were no other resources other than the emergency room. Yeah. Um, and every time after that, I would be brought back to the hospital. I would stay for a couple of days in the inpatient psych ward uh, until I stopped trying or threatening to kill myself and then i'd be uh discharged back out into basically the same environment uh that i was in before that and nothing changes if nothing changes so i'd be okay for a while i would uh, struggle again and i'd end up back in hospital again if you don't like asking were they trying to medicate you at that time yeah so i was uh over the course of the the next three years or so on more than a dozen different medications in a variety of combinations uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, uh, anti-convulsants, sleeping medications, all sorts of different uh, things put together. So I felt like a zombie uh, mm-hmm. half the time anyway. Um, and I really started to get a sense because I had spoken mostly to psychiatrists. I had a, a small number of interactions with psychotherapists. Um, but I really started to feel like if all these incredibly smart people can't help me, uh, then maybe it just meant I was unhelpable. Maybe it wasn't their problem that they couldn't fix me as though I was broken, um, but that it was my problem, that I was just born with a broken brain. I was one of the hopeless kind because they can't figure out what's going on with me. 
Um, and that's really what led me uh, late one night to a bridge in my hometown that stretched over an abandoned steel plant, which used to be the lifeblood of, of Sydney, Nova Scotia, uh, but was largely abandoned by the time I was growing up. And I think I went there because I really connected with that place, that sense of emptiness and loneliness uh, that that place represented to me. And uh, I climbed up over the railing, fully intending to end my life uh, when a stranger stopped. And he pulled his car over, he got out, he talked to me for a while, and ultimately ended up saving my life. He grabbed me uh, when I let go of the railing, he grabbed me and pulled me backward over the railing and saved my life. That ended up being the last time that I ever tried to kill myself. And I didn't actually even realize that until probably 10 or 15 years later when I had the opportunity to meet that man again. No way. Oh my goodness. Okay. So that's a big kicker in the story that I was not aware of. Okay. So that's really good to know that you did end up getting to meet with this gentleman later on. We did. Yeah. So by the, when I had done the Ted talk, um, I still didn't even know who he was. And okay. that's really what kind of, that was kind of the next chapter after the Ted talk. Cause I stand on that famous red dot. This talk goes viral all over the world. It's seen by millions and millions of people. Yeah. There's people sending me messages on social media all over the place that I was their stranger who saved them, uh, which is wild to think about because I was just telling my story. That was never even, um, that was never even on my mind at what this, how this might help. Um, other people beyond uh, giving them permission to share their story too, as though they needed it. Um, but after that, I had this incredible urge to find this person because I didn't even, to be honest, know if he was real. Um, yeah. I didn't know if maybe I had just made him up in my head because I needed a savior in my mind at that point. Totally. Um, so I had, I had been developing excuse me, um, relationships with media. I'd been doing more and more television. I started out writing for newspapers, uh, mostly about mental health, but I had been doing more and more television, especially uh, around the time of the TED Talk. So I asked a producer at a, a national uh, morning pro news program here in Canada if I can come on TV and ask for the public's help in finding the stranger who saved my life. Um, because I had asked for the police records and there was nothing in there. I pulled the medical records. There was nothing in there about them. So I used the skills that I'd been developing all these years, which is to, to work with the public to try to find this guy. Wow. And within about an hour of that morning segment, I start getting flooded with messages from people who knew who he was, uh, no. that he was living, yeah, still living in Nova Scotia. He's been working with uh, young boys in crisis situations ever since, uh, and that he had seen my TED Talk a week before I went on national television to look for him. And he had already written me a letter in case someday he ever found me. So it's like the universe was just pushing us together. Wow. Like I, like you're leaving a girl who's never speechless, speechless here. That is absolutely incredible. And the fact that like the impact off of that. So like, not only did he save your life, but you changed his life so much that it changed his purpose on what he felt like he needed to do. You know, like this guy could have had a financially secure job. He could have had it all built for him. But one experience in his life changed his trajectory of what his purpose was. And that was all thanks to you. So like the impact of really how many people have been helped on both sides is like phenomenal. So I am so, so happy to hear that you were able to meet up with him. Now, what I want to know is that you're helping so many people now. And, you know, at the end of your TED talk, you had mentioned that you want people to keep thinking about suicide mm -hmm. and you want them to keep thinking about it so that they can start talking about it. And when they start talking about it, 
then they can start going to get the help that they need to change it. And I want you to tell the viewers, if you were able to go back to yourself, and I mean like nine-year-old Mark, and you were able to sit him down to make this story a lot different than how it is, what would you have said to him? I think I would have told him and validated for him that it feels hard because it is hard, (laughs) that your feelings are valid and that they matter, they're important. There are accurate representations of the world around you, rather than just having somebody to tell you, especially as a little boy, but anybody, don't cry, don't worry, suck it up, you know, yeah. life is hard. I didn't need any of that stuff. I needed somebody to see me, uh, to feel me, to be to with reassure. me, to reassure me into my very core of my experience, to validate me. So that's what I would hope to to do for that boy too, to help him see that his feelings we're just as legitimate as any adult feelings as anybody else, uh, but also from there uh, that he doesn't have to become them, that he can be in it but not of it. He can, he can still feel those feelings, that's okay, but feelings are just data points. Feelings aren't facts that you don't, they don't necessarily define who you are or what you have to do, that you can learn new ways to deal with them. Um, so that's where I hope you would... Um, I'd be able to help him to to learn some of everything that I've learned ever since, which is how to better not only recognize my, my feelings, my emotions, but how to work with them, not against them. I think that it's been, you know, a lot of things that we've grown with over the years, we really went from like one point and then just like accelerating to 150%. And what I mean by that is that for this example, we look at masculinity Back in the day, it was the do not cry. You need to show that you're strong. You know, men don't have emotions. And then now we we blasted it so hard that it's like we never found that middle ground for gentlemen, in, what, in my personal opinion, that you can be strong and you can have emotions, that you can love on your family and still be the protector. You know, like there's... it's the yin and yang with it. Right. But I feel like we really lost that middle ground. And I think that this is just an important thing to bring up that it's okay, whether you are a man or a lady or anything else, that it's okay to feel emotions. Right. Right. And that, and that those emotions um, don't depict who you are, but it's really important to know what's going on with them because they will take over control if you allow them to, right? And so I want to know, how are you helping men and women today in order for for them to be able to see their worth? Well, I think that what you say is is very accurate in, in that it doesn't actually matter if you're a man or a woman or anything, anybody in between, uh, that what we're really talking about here is the human experience and humans have emotions. We've, we've, evolved uh, all of through all of human history to have these emotions for a reason Uh, and what's i think exciting about emotion is that we don't have to run from them that it's allowed to hurt and that there's something good there something good can happen with it that's that's your creative energy your eros your pathos that's what drives you are those little things that stir inside you sometimes, whether it's the uh, intuition that you have or your anger or your frustration, that's all good stuff. That's material to be worked with. So I think wherever you are in your life, if you're, if you're highly accomplished or you're just starting out, if you're a man or a woman or anybody in between, using that creativity, I think, inside you is really how you can discover 
a life that you had maybe shut down for yourself before. And that can be an incorporated, I think, into any industry. We, we need more creative use of emotion in every industry and in every job and every um, state of humanity. So I think that we, we need this resource that's just waiting here for us. So over the years, is that something that you feel like you've really um, seen as a commonality is that, you know, people are getting stuck because they feel like as soon as they have a negative emotion, that that means that now everything sucks, that they suck, that 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 negative is never going to bring a positive, that now they're trapped in some sort of a box. Like, would you say that that's the number one reason why people get stuck or what do you see? Yeah, 100 percent. It's 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 this when people should all over themselves uh, or they they say that they shouldn't for whatever reason i shouldn't feel this because i'm a man what does that mean i shouldn't do this because i'm a woman i shouldn't feel this way because i'm supposed to be happy all this language this judgmental language we judge others you shouldn't do that because you're making me uncomfortable what does yeah. that even mean you know and this this is another thing too we tell other people how to feel all the time strangers loved ones just in our own reaction to their emotion you know if somebody is struggling why can't we just be with them and hold that space that uncomfortable painful space when they're struggling it's okay your emotions won't kill you they're gonna suck sometimes but we can also experience the opposite the glory the passion the the joy as well so i think we need to be able to to sit with our own emotions even when especially when they're uncomfortable because there is no should in this but we also need to be able to sit with the with the emotions of others and that's compassion that's empathy that's how we really help people so obviously we are seeing uh you know the talks of mental health and suicide grow which is fabulous we're also seeing the population grow quite a bit so as a professional looking at statistics all the time how are the statistics looking when it comes to suicide? Is it something that we are actually doing a better job at preventing because of the fact that we are opening up more conversations, more ways to help people? Or do you still see like there's a really big gap that needs to be filled in in order for us to really make difference in this? Yeah, I'd like to be able to tell you that we've solved stigma, um, that we've finally cracked the nut on awareness. And it's just has it's just not happening. Uh, the the numbers really haven't improved uh, either in numbers of suicides or diagnostic rates or anything else. Actually, and it, it's getting worse or hold, holding steady generally across the board. There's a, a number of reasons for that. One of the primary ones, I think, is that while yes, we've dramatically increased our awareness, especially over the last ten years, five ten years or so, more people are talking in media than ever before. Uh, millennials, Gen Z, and younger are much more likely than any older generation to not only not only speak openly about their own mental health struggles, but to actually ask for help as well, which is really important. That's the whole point of awareness. It's not just for the sake of talking. It's to encourage people to reach out for help. Um, unfortunately, I think that the level of awareness that we're having in the, in public discourse still isn't very sophisticated. And yeah. sometimes some of the messaging is not very helpful. Sometimes it's actually the opposite of helpful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, whether that's in the form of, um, you hear a lot of talk about toxic positivity. I actually, I have some issues with that because it's a bit of a straw man. I actually don't really see a whole lot of people saying, oh, just be happy, uh, as though that's so easy. Um, 
But I do see people using uh, biologically determinative language, as in, this is you were just born this way is to be depressed. No, you weren't. There's zero evidence to support that. Mm-hmm. You have a different brain. No, you don't. Your brain is 99.999% the same as everybody else. It's, yeah. it's incredibly similar to monkeys. You share a significant amount of your genes with a banana. There's not a whole lot of difference between you and somebody else when it comes to your neurological makeup. But I think um, it's so that I, victim mentality that we put ourselves in where it's like, it's only me. I'm the only person who could be feeling this. Right. And that's why it's like, there's something wrong with my brain. You don't understand because of my family, because of what, right. So I I feel like you're, you're getting into some really good stuff there. So please continue. Well, this is, this is something that I tried to tap into, have been trying to tap into ever since the Ted talk. And even before that, this shrinking of your world that happens as you become sicker, as you become uh, more vulnerable, as your mental health uh, uh, declines, uh, your world collapses in around you, becomes more narrow, you, it becomes more literal, more black and white. You mm-hmm. feel this need um, to, to define yourself, whether it's yes. by a diagnosis or by your experience, rather than just being like I am now, I, uh, I am the universe, I am that, I am that, I am that too. You can be anything when you, when you loosen up the boundaries of your perception of your identity, even just a little bit. But the opposite happens when you're struggling with your mental health. It calcifies and it darkens and it shrinks. And ultimately what happens in that tight, dark, uh, small place is that you realize that you can't escape that you've overdefined yourself in in all of these different ways. So I think we need more expansiveness in how we talk about mental health and mental illness as well. That yes, it does look a little bit differently for everybody, but far more people than we think have experienced trauma, have experienced depression and suicide attempts, have experienced personality disorders. We're actually not the only one. That our individual variation of it might be very individual because it's ours, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily unique. And, and that's where I think my advocacy work has really helped my recovery, uh, that it's not just a job that I do the advocacy work because it's helped to remind me that I'm not the only one out there who deals with this kind of stuff, that, mm-hmm. that we're in it together. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I think that in a world where we're so connected, we are getting to be more disconnected and we're getting to feel more alone. And I think that that's where we're getting into a lot of problems with them. Bigger debates is because a lot of people are looking for a label to put on themselves, to feel like they understand themselves, to also feel like they're included. And I think that that's a big thing that we're going through as a society. Um, But I really wish that people could understand how great they are and that, you know, we're all made differently because we are able to bring something very special to the table and us all being able to collaborate together really is what builds such a beautiful world instead of feeling like it's so individualized. Right. Right. And not only are we um, made differently, we change, we routinely change. We grow. We grow. There's this idea. And I I used to see this all the time, especially with teenagers who get di- get their first couple of diagnoses for the first time. You always remember, I, I remember my first diagnosis. You always remember your first time. Um, <laughs> but there's this, this tendency to collect diagnoses uh, as though uh, those mean anything. The point of a diagnosis is supposed to be descriptive, not prescriptive. It's supposed to describe as closely as it can anyway uh, what's going on inside you so that way you you can get some help getting out of it it's not a definition that's applied to you such that you can then go 
out and say, I have depression and anxiety and ADD and autism and BPD and uh, uh, you know social anxiety disorder and a laundry list of things. Well, no, actually, you probably don't. To be honest, from a diagnostic perspective, there's probably a small number, maybe even one thing that explains all of those various experiences. And that thing is probably trauma. (laughs) And it's probably trauma. Thank you. Yes, it very likely is. And what's good, what's good news about that, though, is that when we actually get to the nub of it, to the core of it and define what's going on, then we can change. Yeah. Then we can move that, that the, the, def, the definition, the diagnosis, that's not the end point. That's the starting point that's of, exactly on the it. way to the next point. And that's, and it's such a good point there because people think that that's the, that label is the end spot. And then that's where they get to live now. So I am, I am this person and this is who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Right. And I will always have to, you know, whether it's take medication or whatever. So I have two last questions because I very much want to respect your time here. Um, But they're big questions. So I hope you're ready to be on the hot seat. As somebody who has obviously been on quite a few different medications, you have had uh, medications overlapped on top of each other. I'm just going to be honest. In my personal opinion, there's absolutely no way that they've ever tested all of these medications being overlapped on top of each other and how they're affecting somebody. I am also... I also do not believe in the fact that pharma loves to just give out these heavy prescriptions without doing any back checks into how their mental health is, how they're currently doing with addiction, so on and so forth. The other thing that I am not okay with is the fact that pharma is giving these out and not wanting to have any, like if they're giving out medication for depression or anxiety or anything like that, they're not setting them up with even monthly appointments to do check-ins to see how are these changes being made? Like you said, the medication is not actually making any changes. It's step, it's, it's masking whatever you're feeling and you need to take steps in your life in order to make those changes. And they're not even providing people with activities that they could be doing in order to progress themselves. So do, do you kind of see this gap as I see it currently right now? Or what is your opinion on medication fixing depression and anxiety slash suicidal tendencies and where we can go in the future? So I think that there, let me start with my personal experience. I had some good experiences with medication that helped to finally lift the fog that I'd been under to help me see uh, a glimmer of light that I hadn't seen before. I had some awful experiences on medication um, that that really messed me up for a long time, especially as as you mentioned, when you start getting into cocktails of different medications and you get prescriptions to help treat the side effects of the other prescriptions. Um, That's when it gets very, very complicated, of course. Um, Ultimately, uh, I came off medication. uh, I went back on every now and then. I I found one that worked reasonably well for me. I stayed on it for a long time. I came off it. I dipped back on it back and forth. And for a a very long time, haven't been on any medication since. Um, I think that there is a role for medication sometimes. Uh, I don't think that it should be the frontline role. And actually, the um, in the in the United Kingdom, they've moved uh, toward a model of having psychotherapy be the frontline treatment for depression right. and anxiety. Uh, and the reason for that is that you can, uh, if you can't get out of bed in the morning because you're so debilitatingly depressed, then it's going to be really hard to get to see your psychotherapist or your caseworker or whoever it is. You can't do the work if you're so encumbered by the symptoms of the illness uh, that you can't access the resources that are important. Correct. However, uh, the, the, uh, n- there's not a whole lot of evidence to show that long-term antidepressant use is going to help fix, in the long-term sense, anything. Uh, okay. It's not a cure. 
uh, it, it might help you with the symptoms. Uh, and it does for about 30% or so of people, okay. um, which, is, which is pretty low when you think of it. What will help very likely with the long-term uh, recovery, uh, according to most of the research, is psychotherapy, evidence-based psychotherapy, to actually learn how to uh, cope more effectively. So I, I, I'm supportive of a combination approach, but That's you're right. also right. Yeah, you're also right in that um, medication is still the frontline uh, treatment. Um, antidepressant uh, medications and anti-anxiety medications are among the most widely prescribed uh, in the world, but especially in Canada and the United States. Uh, and it's not really making a dent in, in people's recovery rates in, in any meaningful way. For sure. And, and, and I super respect that answer. And I think that when you're looking at stats of roughly 30% of it actually being effective, that's where I hope that we open up more conversations in the sense of being able to bring more of the, like the psychotherapy with the pharma so that you can do both together and actually make some progress with the person. Right. So. Well, and I'll, I'll also mention here too, though, that the way that, um, the biomedical model of treatment for uh, depression in particular, because that's the one that most people deal with. The yeah. way that it's been, it's become such a mainstream, commonly accepted way of treating depression uh, that most people don't realize that it actually doesn't work uh, for a lot of people. And the policy implication of that is that currently in Canada, we have, we're having a very active debate about medical assistance in dying mm -hmm. uh, for people who only have a mental illness and nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, uh, specifically, if you have major depressive disorder, depression will never kill you. Biomechanically, it will never kill you on its own. It's not a terminal condition. Sure. Uh, but we have people who have been suffering uh, grievously with depression for 20, 30 years. And they will come and they say, I've tried everything and nothing works. But then if you actually take a step deeper into what they've tried, they've probably tried a laundry list of medications. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, that's not going to work for everybody. We already know that. But mm -hmm. the consequence is then that person feeling like they're the failure because yeah. they've failed they're their broken. treatments. They're broken. And that's not the case. There are other interventions out there that work better than medication that that person probably didn't have access to. Beautiful. Okay. So such good information, which is going to lead us into our last question that I have for you, which I think might be the most difficult. And I hope that you have the answer because I think anybody who has felt in a really low spot before who has contemplated suicide or who has actually been in that moment trying to commit suicide, the hardest thing to do is to ask for help. When you're hurting, it feels good. Like we talked about, you're putting yourself in that box. That's your safety box. You're in control. How do you get somebody to ask for help when they are in that spot? Well, I mean, what I would remind myself for so many times, especially after I relapsed close after um, my initial acute few years of struggle, if you have nothing else to lose, if you feel like you have nothing else to lose, you might as well try everything, especially the things that are the most unexpected. Mm -hmm. Because consistently, what I've found in, in not only the, the turning points that turned from, that turned bad things, subjective bad things inside me into good experiences, but that have turned good experiences in, into incredible experiences, have always been unexpected. It has always been ways of, of me leaning into saying is something and saying, oh, this is going to suck. I don't want to do this. This is going to be terrible. And then it turns out to have an incredibly profound impact on me. So I think that if you, the irony of it is that 
when you're struggling with your mental health, especially if you've had a history of trauma, it's all about control. I need to get control of my mind. I need to get control of my life and my family. And I need to control what everybody else thinks of me. Mm-hmm. If you just loosen your grip a little bit and you let go of that control, that need for control, and you just lean back and, and, and let it unfold a little bit, you'd be surprised what happens when you well, just yeah. relax into it. And that's, that's such a great point because the reality is, is that your control kind of sucks right now, right? You're not in control in the way that you hope to be in control. And like what you're saying is that um, if you, if you're in a spot where, where you're hurting and you haven't asked for help before, but you're still not where you want to be asking for help might be that step that you need to take that step forward. But we're so, I think, afraid to, to ask or, or we're in that mentality where we need to do it on our own. You know, it's our responsibility. We don't want to be a burden to other people. Um, yeah. So I, I think we that get stuck, really- we get stuck and stuck and rigid and consistently the pain, the suffering you're feeling doesn't always come from the, the situation itself. It comes from the friction, the resistance that's created in you saying it shouldn't be this way. I don't want this. I don't like this. That's what's causing the, the friction. So I think if we want to change, then we have to accept who and what we are. Beautiful. I absolutely love that. So is there anything else that you would like to leave the listeners with on this podcast episode for a piece of advice or inspiration? Well, I hope that, and this was the um, final message of my TED talk all those years ago as well, um, that people share their story, that we fall into this trap of thinking that our story doesn't matter, of thinking that our individual humble story can't change the world. And it can. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has stories. Yes. So your story is important and relevant and you need to share it because I guarantee you, even if it's your millionth time telling it, there's somebody out there for whom it's their first time hearing it. And that's what makes it all worthwhile. Beautiful. I love that. So guys, keep focusing on yourself. Keep building your own story. It is meant to be your story and not compared to anybody else's. And the cool part is, is that we get to bring all of our stories together and impact each other in the most positive way. So I know that we're so grateful for Mark and everything that he does on his day-to-day making these changes. And we know that we're still at the beginning, but I believe with the way he's fighting, the way he's impacting other people, people's lives. And having you guys here listening to this kind of content is what is going to allow this world to change the way we want it to change. So Mark, I know so many people are going to want to get into contact with you. Can you please let us know the best ways to reach you? Sure. I'm on most social uh, social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and everywhere else at Mark Hennick. That's M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. My book is So-Called Normal, A Memoir of Family, Depression, and Resilience. That's available worldwide at most uh, all book retailers that I'm aware of. Okay, great. Well, what I will do is I will get that all linked in the notes so that you guys can check out the TED Talk. You can purchase one of his books and then go and follow him on social media because you know he's up to some great things. So Mark, thank you so much for your time today. It was honestly an honor having you on the podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of Naked in Truth. And you know that I will catch you next fucking Monday. And that's another honest episode dropped. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to Naked in Truth, where we come together every Monday morning to set the week off with intention. Don't forget to head over to our Instagram page at Naked in Truth Podcast to stay up to date on future episodes, guest speakers, 
and other kick-ass info that can help you continue to create your impact. And you know that reviews are so valuable when it comes to building a community of like-minded people. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please, please, please drop some love on Apple Podcast Reviews and share this episode with someone who you think needs it. Thank you guys so much again for tuning into today's episode. I'll catch you next Monday. And don't forget, love always wins.